Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles as we turn to today's scripture. It's Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 18 through 30. It's on page 1201 in your Bibles. Again, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's bow together as we approach God's word. Father, thank you that you speak to us, that you make yourself known to us. And you have ultimately made yourself known in the word made flesh, Jesus, your own dear son. And so we pray this day as we hear your word read and preached that we might know you in it, through it, by it. And the Father, we might be moved with gratitude and with joy in obedience to follow your word and to serve you in so doing. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So today's passage, as we picked up from last week, today's passage goes from, you might say, verse 17, the end of verse 17 to the end of 30. And I call it a story of glory, because the last word in in the Greek of verse 17 is the word glory, and the last word in verse 30, again in the Greek, is the word glory. So it's a story of glory from beginning to end. But notice in verse 17, there's there's a strong conditional In verse 17, it says, if we're children, then we're heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Or the NIV says, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, you may be thinking to yourselves, well, you know, that's great that the story goes from glory to glory. 
but my question is, how do I get from here to glory? That's a far more significant question existentially. Um, there are a lot of obstacles in life between here and there, between now and glory for any one of us, for all of us. Those obstacles, those challenges are there. You can kind of think of it um, like a series of mountains. I remember the scene from Last of the Mohicans where the camera spans over that range of North Carolina hills in just one row after another on into the far horizon. Barriers to your journey. So if we think about those mountain ranges as obstacles. We sort of have fun with our grandkids uh, Kathy's mom lives at Telhai, and we run over there with the grandkids and come back. If you've ever driven Park Road from Telhai, from Beaver Dam on into uh, Cambridge, there are a couple of hills as the car starts up that the horizon disappears, and all you have is the road in front of you and then the sky. And we joke to our kids, this is the end of the world, the end of the world, and then we go over the top, and it isn't, but there's another one in front of us that you ascend same way, and the... The landscape disappears, and all you have is the hill in front of you and the sky. It's the end of the world. The end of the world. They're getting a little older now, and that's kind of worn thin, but we still enjoy it, <laughs> even when it's just the two of us. It's the end of the world. Oh, no. And now that the corn's getting higher, you just feel like you're in a tunnel headed there. But if you, if you only see the hill and, and nothing beyond, it can make you know, your challenges, whatever they are currently, they can be distracting they can be all absorbing they can be overwhelming they can tempt you to to turn back or or to turn aside as the words of the old hymn say they threaten to undo us the challenges are just too big and so the question is how do we keep from being disoriented or distracted in our journey from here to that glory which is ahead in recognition of the obstacles and the challenges. Well, when I was in flight school, this didn't happen in my class, but the story was told of another student who was flying. Now, what they would do with combat training is you would have an experienced pilot in the front and a rookie navigator in the back, and you'd have a rookie pilot in the front and an experienced navigator in the back and the other plane, and two planes would go out, and they would do combat maneuvers, training pilots, training navigators. Well, the issue was that Channel 20 was what we called Squadron Common, that, that everybody in the squadron was tuned into Channel 20 on the radio. So the conversation between planes as well as between the pilot in the front and the navigator or the co-pilot in the back was live. You heard what everybody was thinking and talking about. And, and after one series of combat maneuvers, the rookie pilot in the one plane was completely disoriented not knowing where the horizon was. He was lost in space, as it were, with clouds in the ground, just indistinct. And so the experienced co-pilot, navigator in the back, was talking to him, trying to get him back to flying level, to, to look at his horizon bar and understand you know, where his plane was in relationship to the horizon. Of course, that conversation was on Channel 20, on Squadron Common, and the experienced pilot flips his plane upside down and flies past the rookie. <laughs> Boom, clear back, back into disarray and disorientation. Well, that's kind of what can happen to us. You know, the, the buffeting of life, the challenges, the, the distractions can disorient us. And, and we lose our focus. We lose our horizon. And, and that's what that rookie pilot had to learn to do is put his eyes back on the horizon bar, 
you're flying on instruments. You're not flying visually. You're flying on instruments. And your instruments are your guide to straight and level and to your destination. So what we need is we need a horizon bar, something that will successfully or enable us to successfully navigate the challenges. We need a fixed point by which to make our journey. Now, the fascinating thing in this passage is we we have such a fixed point right in the middle of the passage. If you jump to verses 24 and 25, right there in the middle is our horizon bar, hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, says Paul, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, one thing I want us to notice as as we go into the passage especially as we start here kind of at the horizon bar. Hope is not subjective in the scriptures. It is objective. When I was a kid, we had um, Annie Get Your Gun, the musical on 45 RPM. Do you remember with the big hole in the middle and they were about that big around? Well, one of the songs on Annie Get Your Gun was called, Who Do You Love? I Hope. Who do you love? I hope. Who would you kiss? I hope. Who is it going to be? I hope, I hope, I hope it's me. Was it the baker who baked you the cake? I saw the look in his eye. Was it the butcher who gave you the steak? Say that it is and I'll die. Who do you love? I hope. Who would you kiss? I hope. Who is it going to be? I hope, I hope, I hope it's me. You see how hope is there? Hope is something in you. Oh, I just hope. I hope this happens. I hope you're the guy. I hope you're the gal. I hope, I hope, I hope. That's not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is hope is fixed on the action of God and on the promise of God. Hope is grounded in the word of God and the acts of God. And so we have a fixed point. Says John Stott in his commentary, to be sure, at present we experience sufferings and groans, but we are sustained in the midst of them by the hope of glory. So far, it is only a hope because it is still future, unseen and unrealized, but it is not on that account uncertain. On the contrary, says Stott, our Christian hope is solidly grounded on the unwavering love of God. That's the kind of hope that is our horizon bar for our journey from here to glory. And I want to look with you now at at some of the ranges, you might say, of this life against the horizon of hope. To to see these things with hope as the backdrop, with hope, the horizons of hope. If you have your bulletin, you want to follow along with the insert there. Paul says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed And I think more properly, uh, the NIV translates it this way, to be revealed in us, not to us. We're not looking at glory. We are being filled with glory. We're being changed into glory. So I call this a storm of suffering. Now, when we think of suffering in the New Testament, certainly in light of verse 17, you know, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified. We tend to think of, of persecution for our faith. You know, that kind of suffering jumps out, perhaps, from the text. 
Jesus says in numbers of places recorded in the Gospels, basically, you're going to be hated because you're my disciple. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, he says in Mark 13, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we, we tend to think of suffering in those terms for our faith as Christians. But let's be honest. There is a lot of suffering in the world that's not connected at all with our faith. But, but we can't escape it or deny it. It's part of our human existence. Sickness, loss, pain, death. All of these things, these storms of suffering can come at us and threaten to undo us. They can, they can lead to questioning God. They can lead to doubting his goodness, to denying his sovereignty, to rebelling against him even. If that's the kind of God I'm supposed to serve, then I'm not doing it. But Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so we need to reflect on this storm of suffering against the background of hope. Just real quickly, the suffering and the glory are not separable. They they belong together, again, in verse 17, provided, or if indeed, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the suffering and glory are together. You, You don't get to glory without going through storms of suffering. But, but also notice that the suffering is now and the glory is then. That's why hope is such an important factor. That, that there are, if you will, two different ages. There's the now of suffering and then the not yet of glory. It's out there, but it's not here yet. So while they, while they can't be separated, they do characterize two different eons or ages. The now and, and the then, the not yet. And Paul also says there in verse 18, look, the sufferings aren't even worth comparing. You know, compared to what awaits us when we reach glory in that great getting up morning, as one of the songs used to say, there's no use comparing. It's a, it's a trifle. It's over in a moment. You know, as I get older, I'm continually surprised by how quickly life zooms by. I probably shared this with you, but numbers of years ago, my, my dad's remaining uncle was turning 90, and Kathy's grandmother was turning 90, and we were going to be celebrating their birthdays. So I, I called my uncle up, and I wished him happy birthday, and I said, you know, Grandma's turning 90, and we're going to be celebrating with her. And he said, oh, he said, there's an awful lot of that going around. <laughs> I kind of laughed, and then he said, you know, it didn't take that long to get here either. And I was less than half his age at the time. I, <laughs> you could have knocked me over with a feather. Ninety didn't take that long. Well, Paul says the sufferings of this present time, not even worth comparing. And then finally, he said, look, as we go on and see in the next verse, suffering and glory, both, both suffering and glory concern the creation and the children. God's creation, God's children are both involved in suffering and both will be involved in glory. Paul is by way of explanation in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons, the children of God. That Greek word, according to lexicon, means to wait with head raised, eyes fixed on that point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. 
And I couldn't help but think, you know, as a pastor over the years, it's a wedding. And the doors at the back open and the bride starts down the aisle. And everybody in the pews is looking back, trying to, trying to see, you know, they want to be, get the first glimpse. They stick their head out the aisle and, and look down. They're, they're eagerly awaiting, eagerly longing to see the bride. That's what Paul says. Creation is doing that. Creation is like people on a parade route. As you hear the band, you sort of stick your head out into the street and look down to see the flashing of the horns, etc., and hear the music. It's out there coming, and I want to see it. And what they're looking for, Paul says, the, the big reveal, any of you are HGTV fans know, that's, that's the end when it's all slick and done and finished. That's the big reveal. Well, the big reveal here is the revealing of the sons of God. Who they are. And and what do they look like now that they're changed into glory? Creation is not just material stuff in in, in the scriptures. Creation is an entity. I don't mean to give it personality directly, but, but it's an entity created by God. There are numerous places in the Old Testament where when God brings an indictment against his people, he calls the heavens and the earth to be witnesses. You you all, heavens and earth, have seen how these people are behaving. I'm going to call you to be the jury as I present my case. So so there is a, a, what do I want to call it? There is a vital spirit almost in creation as a whole, in all of its things. And so they are looking, creation is on tiptoe trying to view the bride for the revealing of the sons of God, who they are will be made plain and what they're going to look like. Tells us that, that we, says Paul, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And why are they doing that? Why, why is creation eager for the sons to be revealed. Paul says in verse 20, for the creation itself was subjected to futility, to, to emptiness, to frustration, to purposeless, purposelessness. The, the basic idea is it's transitory. And, and it's the word that the Septuagint, that, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, of course, was written in Hebrew, but early on it was translated into Greek. The Old Testament translation into Greek uses this word, futility, for vanity of vanities. All is vanity, as the writer of Ecclesiastes begins. Or meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's the meaning of futility. But notice... Subjected in futility, not willingly. It wasn't creation's idea to be cursed. It was Adam and Eve who did it. But not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in. And boy, I wish you could all just take a pen and scratch out that comma there. It was subjected in hope. The same hope that we talked about as we began. It's, it's a hope that's grounded on God's work, God's love, his unfailing purpose. This Subjection to futility, to meaninglessness, to emptiness is grounded in hope. And that hope, says Paul, 
is that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There will be a new beginning when, when all of the futility and frustration and meaninglessness and corruption of the world, the creation around us, will be replaced. There'll be peace and harmony and security and righteousness and joy. And both creation, both creation, verse 21, and we too, verse 22, have been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, verse 23. We ourselves groan. So, so the groaning is universal. All of creation, including you and me, are waiting for the day when the sons of God will be revealed. Or as verse 23 says, as we wait eagerly, and that's the same Greek word again, peering down the aisle to see the bride come, as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. What does that mean? Paul says that means the redemption of our bodies. He says in Corinthians that, that the mortal cannot inherit the immortal, that the, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, but, but we must all be changed. We must be transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And, and creation on its tiptoes is waiting to see that, the revealing of the children of God. And we also, even though we have this first fruits, we have the Spirit. Even though we have the Spirit, we too are groaning for that. Why? Verse 24, for in this hope, what hope? The hope that there will be a day when all of creation is made new and when we ourselves are made new, when we will have new bodies, our resurrection body. I love what what one commentator had to say about this. A little longer paragraph, but, but follow it. And if the question is asked, what sense can there be in saying that the subhuman creation... The Jungfrau, for example, or the Matterhorn, or the planet Venus. What sense can there be in saying that that those elements suffer frustration by being prevented from properly fulfilling the purpose of its existence? So, so why can't Venus just be Venus? Why can't the Matterhorn be the Matterhorn? Why, you know, why can't creation be creation? Says he. The answer must surely be that the whole magnificent theater of the universe, together with all its splendid properties and all the varied chorus of subhuman life created for God's glory, is cheated of its true fulfillment as long as man, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his part. You get that? God made everything, Genesis 1 tells us, and it was good. And then he made man, and he was really good. And the only part of that creation which has rebelled is the part made in the image of God. Man has refused to be what he was made to be. All of creation does what it does, including the forces of creation. I I joke with my grandkids, you know, when the cup hits the floor, I'm like, hmm. Gravity monster's still awake. Gravity monster, st- the gravity monster never goes to sleep, nor do the other dynamics of this creation. So why are they frustrated? Why are they in futility? Because man isn't holding up his end. 
But when he finally does, when, when the revealing of the children of God in glory occurs, then all of creation will be rejoicing together in that. God's creation is going to be redeemed and glorified because God's children are going to be redeemed and glorified. And we read there in, in chapter 21 of Revelation, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth and, and we as the bride of Christ, that, that God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the hope of creation. That's the hope of the church. That's the hope of you and me as we go from here to glory. That's, that's the horizon of hope behind the suffering that we have and the frustration, the fact of the futility of life. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes is in essence an extended commentary on this one word, on futility. But for that reason, I think it's one of the most important books that we have because it plainly, if you will, seals all the exits. You can't, you can't be an unbeliever and get out of here. All you're going to do as a human being is die. And that's the message of Ecclesiastes. But that's the good news. Because then you quit trying to find an exit on your own terms. And you're open to the one that God himself offers. So that's the second, you might say, um, horizon that we have for hope. Is, is there the storms of suffering, the fact of futility? We move past hope here. So in that hope, what's the hope? The hope of our redemption. That's the hope we were saved in. Paul says in verse 26, there's, there's a weight of weakness. We just don't know what to do. We're too small. We're too limited. We're too ignorant. Often, unfortunately, we're too sinful. We don't know what to do. And so as we wait with patience, verse 25, the Spirit helps us in that because he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know, I, know, I don't know about you, but sometimes you're praying for a situation. Maybe it's your own life or, or a situation you've heard of in the church or in your relationships. And you honestly don't know. You know do, do you pray for deliverance? Out of the sufferings, or do you pray for the strength to endure them? I mean, which is it? You know, search of candy mint, search of breath mint, which is it? They're both, right? You, you, you need to do both things, but you're not sure what to do. And, and sometimes that uncertainty can make us hesitant, and we don't do anything. And Paul wants to, I think, encourage us by recognizing that that, that weight of weakness is put against the horizon of hope. And that hope is... The spirit who searches our hearts is the spirit who intercedes for us. And says Paul in verse 27, he who searches hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. According to the will of God. Now just, if you would put your finger right there and jump down two verses, the end of verse 28 There's something else according to God's purpose, according to his will. And those two things are going to connect. I'll get that to a second. But but right now, the the Spirit identifies with our groans. The Spirit, too, desires 
the church to be all that God intends it to be. He desires the world to be all that God intended it to be. And, and if you will, the, our pain in our situation, our pain at the world around us, is a pain that the Spirit shares, He identifies with, and therefore intercedes for us with, with groanings that aren't expressed. They just aren't expressed. He, he groans with our spirit. And because the spirit intercedes for us according to God's will, God hears that. God hears that and knows that. And this, to me, gave insight into one of the things that John says in 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward the Lord that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll pray for things. I'm like, I didn't get an answer to that. Lord, how come? You know, didn't you hear me? Well, we can be confident that out of our groanings, out of our not knowing, you know, should I pray for this or should I pray for that or should I pray for both at once, even though they're you know, mutually exclusive, the Spirit interceding for us is according to the will of God, and therefore what the Spirit prays out of our groanings is what God hears and answers. Because God knows the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes for us. So that that we can be confident that what we ask according to His will through the Spirit will be done. It's just because we're ignorant, we don't even know what the Spirit's praying for. We're just confused. And I think that there's a, you might say there's, there's a warning here. I was reading in Ligonier Ministries devotional earlier this week. It says this, sometimes young Christians have been bitterly disappointed in, quote, unanswered prayers, not because God failed to keep his promises, but because well-meaning Christians made promises for God that God never authorized. You know, I don't want to point fingers, but you could think of like the name it and claim it gospel. Yeah, okay, I prayed for that and it didn't happen. Well, you just didn't have enough faith. You just didn't, you know, have enough hope in whatever it is. That, that you can be turned aside by a false understanding or an adequate understanding of what is meant here. But what is meant is that as we groan in the hope that is before us, the Spirit interceding brings our prayers to the Lord and the Spirit's, you might say, translation is according to the will of God. And God, hearing that, responds with his answers. So we've, we've gone through sufferings, we've gone through futility, we've gone through weakness, and now we come to what I call the guarantee of glory, verses 28 through 30. Okay? So the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, end of verse 27. And now there are... Four things, five things, that we know here in this next verse. We know that God works in our lives. I don't like the translation here because I don't think it it works. The NIV says, we know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. It's not things working together for good. It's God working together in things, the sufferings, the weakness, the futility, the pain. God works in those things for the good of his people. So that our suffering, back to verse 17, our suffering has purpose. God's in that stuff doing his thing for you and for me. The thing doesn't do it for us. The thing is, in one sense, immaterial. 
But the thing happens, and God works in that for our good. So, one, God works for, for us in the things that happen. And then he works for our good, for, for our redemption. Back to verse 19, for the revealing of sons of God. 23, the first fruits of the Spirit, the redemption of our bodies for this hope that is ours. This is what God is working for. This is our final salvation, the redemption of our bodies, the new heaven and the new earth in which we will dwell. And God works as well in all things. There's nothing that happens to you or to me that God doesn't work in. We may not like it. And if we had our druthers, we'd rather have something else. But in that thing, in those things, whatever they are, God is at work for our good in them. And he works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, that's important. That word called is important. And Paul is going to unfold it here in the next couple of verses. He says, for those whom he foreknew, and boy, this is important. Some people, not us Reformed thinkers, obviously, but some people have the notion that God's foreknowing is, is him having like a sneak preview of history. And he looks down the corners of time and sees, you know, Dan deciding to love Jesus. And so God calls me. That, that is upside down and backwards from what Paul is saying here. He's saying, those whom God loves... Because foreknowledge with God is not a, a mental thing, if you will. It's not a knowledge of something. It's a foreloving, if you will. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that, that we were in him, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that, that God loved us, you know, as the reading in Psalm 139, before we even came to be, before we even formed in our mother's womb, God foreknew us and loved us. And those that he foreknew, foreloved, you might say, he predestined. Now, let's not stop at that word. Read the phrase with me. He predestined to what? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's purpose. God's ultimate purpose in his creation and in his salvation, in what he does in Christ, is to make a people who are obedient to him out of love for him, who, who are fulfilled in fellowship with God in perfect obedience. That's why you and I are made. In, in one sense, the, you know, escaping condemnation is not the end of the game. Becoming conformed to the image of Christ so that we are fulfilling the obedience of Christ in our lives and ultimately perfectly in the new creation, that's God's purpose. So those he foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus would have brothers and sisters who are like him. And those whom he thus predestined, he also called. That is, he he invited you and he invited me with a divine summons that brought us to life. You know, people say, in fact, I just picked up a book this week called The Most Important Decision I Ever Made. And, and while the guy who wrote it is a Christian, I don't think that title works. You didn't make a decision for Jesus. You realized that God had loved you and gave his son to die for you on the cross and that you in him could have redemption. And that's the Lord's call. And you simply respond to that. You don't decide for Jesus. You don't waste. No, 
You are dead and now given life through the love of God. So those whom he called in that way, he also justified. He said that as Paul begins Roman 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that the law no longer has any power, any claim, any accusation to make. You are his pure, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You are righteous now in his sight. You know, and a writer of Hebrews says that because Jesus is that great high priest, we have confidence to enter the very throne room of grace. There to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. So we, we need to be bolder. We need to be more urgent. We need to be more persistent. Why? Because we can be confident that God has loved us and that he has justified us. And Paul says, in those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is, the first foreknown and predestined and called and justified are all, in in Greek, what's called aorist. That's a verb tense. And that means it happened in the past. A a one-time action in the past. That's aorist. Glorified is out there. Remember, we're still on the journey from here to glory. Paul puts that word also in the aorist, as if to say, it's already done too. You're not there yet, but it's done for you. Because it is the purpose of God to make you his own in glory. And because it's God's purpose and God's will, it shall be done. So Paul very confidently, and I would say very accurately, writes as though God has already done that. You and I are glorified in the eye of God. We just haven't made it to glory yet. As the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. So while we wait for this fulfillment of our hope with patience, we're confident in God's promises. We live between our sufferings, which are current, and our glory, which is not yet. And yet it will come. We have that hope, which is an anchor for our souls. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, how we rejoice in such a great salvation. How that you, the almighty, holy, righteous, sovereign God, would stoop to claim poor sinners like us and make us your children. Lord, we are in awe and wonder and in joy and gratitude. So, Father, I pray that you, you would stir us up to obedience with thanksgiving and joy, that our lives might reflect the truth of your salvation and that those who live in darkness might see the light of your glory in our lives as they unfold on our final path to you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.